Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with social psychologist Mazarin Banaji, a pioneer of the science of implicit bias. There is a shorter, produced version of this conversation at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. <laughs> so okay, I'm well, going to interrupt really because this is actually interesting. <laughs> I know uh, it is. I think, uh, I think I'm actually making it worse, probably, because it's creating a whistle. All right. Okay. All right. Sorry, we tried. Okay. Thank you, Graham. Chris has all kinds of fancy buttons that he can try to fade out. That. All right. Well, this mm-hmm. is fun. So let's get going. I don't want to actually. I don't want to do much more substantive until we really get into this. Um. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I I um I start all my interviews by inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, and I wonder how mm. it, and and how you know however you would however you would define mm. that now. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's uh, that will take us an hour, but because uh, I come from, can I speak? Yes, yes. Okay, I come from um, the world's one of the world's minority religions, but that also happens to be of great interest interest to scholars of religion. Um, I was born and raised a Zoroastrian. Yes. Zoroastrianism is probably the world's oldest monotheistic religion. It right. predates Judaism by about 1,500 years, some scholars will argue. And it's... Um, religion that actually dominated much of Central Asia for many centuries. And when the Islamic invasions of Central Asia occurred, uh, and most people were converted to Islam, um, those folks who lived in what was then Persia and wished to continue to practice their original religion left Persia and traveled by boat uh, eastward asking for religious asylum and the first country that allowed them religious asylum was uh, a town in um, western India, in right. Gujarat. Right. And so this group landed there in what we roughly think is the 8th or ninth century um, and has remained in India since then with many different sort of phases of uh, becoming involved in Indian culture and yet remaining distinct and different. So it's very likely that this group of people will die out, well, close to within my lifetime because we mm-hmm. are tiny. Um, seems like we're about 80,000 or so in the world. 50,000 live in Mumbai and what was Bombay, and the rest are scattered all over. Um, and it's of great historical interest that we exist. Uh, But it's also anthropologically odd that we are dying out so fast. We don't accept conversion. Mm. We are patrilineal, so only the children of Mm. Zoroastrian fathers can be Zoroastrian, and many of us are marrying outside the community, as I did, for example. For some odd reason, we don't have children. We tend to marry less than most others. 
I and all and my siblings, none of us have children. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and there's a book um, written by a wonderful anthropologist by the name of Tanya Lerman. Um, yes. On just the oddity of many of our actions and and beliefs, but I am strangely kind of proud to be <laughs> of this community of people dying out. Um, well, you know, uh, I, I wonder yeah. if that flows into, it, it seems mm. related to the question I want to ask you also about uh, if you can trace sort of the origins in your early life to these passions that you follow now. And of course, that's, you know, that's a complicated thing to summarize. But I'd say, you know, the way you are working with our human uh, approach to to the other, to difference, to bias, to diversity. Um, mm-hmm. were, were there roots of that that were, are formative in, in your life um, that maybe you know, inclined I have, you? I have, um, I have no faith in people's ability to reflect back on their lives and yeah. to accurately report on what may be the case, but yeah. I do have theories. Uh, and one such theory is that um, I actually lived in a Zoroastrian enclave. Um, People who surrounded me as neighbors were all Zoroastrians. There were eight families. We lived in a compound. When we left the compound, we knew we were the other. Hmm. Inside the compound, we were free to speak the way we did and behave the way we did, but you literally walked out and in a city of millions, you knew you were different. So we knew that. I never, ever took that seriously or thought that it should matter to anything I did. But I do wonder, I was working on a problem on human memory, nothing to do with what I do now. And I made a little discovery. I'm happy to tell you about the first such study I did. And something made me feel that that was more important than what I was studying. And that shift I assume came from always having been somewhere on the margins of of a society, whether I lived in India or in the U.S. I've actually felt more comfortable in the United States because it is a country of immigrants where yeah. even though I was odder than the oddest, I still am one of many people who probably feel that way. And so there was a deep comfort arriving in the United States as I did in 1980 from a country that is, you know, uh, largely Hindu and has many minorities and many intergroup conflicts around the issue of religion. But my group was always reasonably protected. We were relatively safe. We knew that people weren't going to kill us. Like, I mean, if I were Muslim, I would probably worry if I lived in India, especially now given the deeply right-wing government that has changed so much in that great country for the worse. But... I don't think I ever remember feeling unsafe, but I did know that I probably wouldn't get the job I wanted. I did know Hmm. that we couldn't probably just go call somebody up and have them come fix our house if the the ceiling was leaking. We would have to call an uncle who would call a friend who would then come and do that. So we knew we could not participate in some larger society as equals, but we also knew we were privileged in some way because we were wealthier, we were more educated, and therefore had certain protections. What, what did you, um, what was your degree and what did you study? Um, how, did, how did you kind of wander into this field? 
I, like many Indian kids, um, left, finished high school early. We finished at 15. And what, what are you to know when you're 15 about, you know, the rest of your life? And so I announced to my mother, not having been a particularly good student, I announced to my mother that I wished to be a secretary. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to make 400 rupees a month and live independently. And the poor thing said, okay, but fretted that I would miss out on college, something she had not experienced and wished for me to. Mm. So a year later, I come back having mastered, you know, fast typing and fast shorthand uh, and <laughs> about to get a job. And she was a better psychologist than I. She kind of tricked me into going to college by saying, well, your sister is going to college and wouldn't she, <laughs> the shy one, need some help? And wouldn't you just, would you please go to college for a semester? And when you're done, then you can start your job. And and that's how I got to college. I thought I was there to take care of my sister for a semester and then oh, take my job. And then I never even questioned um, anything. I was in college and I was just mesmerized. But I always assumed that I would be an English literature major because my father, who was um, a quirky man, a deep uh, lover of the arts and language, but was stuck in a tax department working for the equivalent of the IRS. Oh. So you can imagine this poor man who, at a time when India had no jobs for anybody, took this job when he was probably 18 and then um, never never quite um, made the shift. But every evening he'd come home and I was the oldest child and he invested in me and he would sit me on his lap and tell me about Ernest Hemingway or about William Faulkner or about, and he was very, very attracted to American modernists in mm. every way, whether it was architecture or art or literature. And I remember being five and being called into a room to be asked to pronounce Ernest Hemingway, and I could just rattle it off, and <laughs> and, and and the guests would clap. <laughs> so, but I I I was uh, raised in an odd environment where I lived in India, but my favorite words were Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> so. <laughs> And he was a lover of jazz, and I remember listening to records uh, that we would go get from the United States Information Service, the right, USIS. Right. That the would, cultural we, arm of the Cultural US arm. Yeah. There, yeah, there used to be such a thing. Yeah. And, and we would bring these records home, and we would play them together, and I would learn songs like Oh Freedom or something mm. without understanding a bit about what she was what she meant when she sang you know Oh Freedom um, so so it was an odd childhood um, but I would say that he was influential in some incredible way my dad he assumed that I would be like him and I would actually live the life that he never got to live that I would be hmm the person who actually became a scholar of English literature and American literature. And one day he came to me at my desk when I was working in college, and he said, hmm, a big stack of books on psychology and such a small stack of books on literature. <laughs> <laughs> and he walked away, and, he, and I thought he was trying to tell me something, that he wanted me to know that— 
in spite of his influence on me and his love of language and especially English literature, that what he wanted me to do was to follow what I wanted to do. And oh, there was wonderful. Long, yeah, yeah. So he's long. He's gone. He's been gone 10, 20 years, but mm. he left a very strong imprint. Yeah. And it, it's interesting to me to think about the the work you do now, the the discoveries you've made and, and helped us make as a culture. But that when it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you start, when you wandered into psychology, um, we were kind of convincing ourselves that we were that human beings were rational beings, and 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 the language of of the unconscious had kind of fallen out of favor. Is that right? Mm. It's so completely right that I had this flashback to my meeting with my dissertation committee in 1983. And I remember wanting to study the topic of repression. (laughs) Right. (laughs) An old Freudian concept. Mm. I, of course, had long given up any belief in uh, Freud's ideas as having been proven. I knew that that's not how we thought, that Freud belonged in English departments or somewhere in the humanities, but not in a department of science. But the fact of an unconscious appealed to me. I actually have no idea why, but it appealed. I I read studies, experiments done where you could pay people their own words recorded on a on a tape recorder from the, this is a study from the 40s um, you can play you can re- have people record words into a tape recorder and then you can have them hear their those words played back to them through headphones like I'm wearing now except that there are also words the same words said by others and you're asked to identify the words that you're hearing that were said by you in your voice versus words that were said by others and it turns out we're not very good at doing that. We can't tell our own voices apart from the voices of others. Really? We're almost at chance at being able to do that. However, the investigators also hooked people up to a machine that in those old days measured physiology in sort of the crudest possible way, skin conductance. You know, how much yeah. sweat do your fingers excrete when you hear your own voice versus the voice of others? And the data showed that you actually must be recognizing your own voice at some implicit or unconscious level because the skin conductance measure was much higher when you heard your own voice versus the voice of others, mm. even though cognitively you couldn't tell the two apart. I, I was completely fascinated by this. So your body thought, your body knows Somewhere. something, recognizes something that some your system mind in does you. not know. Yes, not your conscious mind. Right. And so this just, I was just bowled over by this. I thought, how can it be that in the same person, in the same mind, there are multiple minds in a sense? Some Mm. part of me knows, some part of me doesn't know. The same thing. And I think it always stuck with me so that years later when I made the discovery that People make judgments about the fame of a name. How famous is this name? And if it turns out if you've heard a name uh, that you could randomly sort of pull out of a phone book, you know, Sebastian Weisdorf. If I hear the name or if I've seen it somewhere in some irrelevant context and then two days later I'm asked, is this 
a famous person, I'm more likely to say yes. Even though I think, oh, it could be that Canadian ice hockey player. Or so. I don't know what, but but something makes me feel. Yeah. So there's a kind of a lingering perceptual, what we might call fluency hmm. for that f- visual stimulus. When in fact, we can't really tell that it was a name. If, especially if you don't remember, you saw it, then you're more likely to make this error. And I just did that same study, except that I thought, I'll use both names of men and women and discovered, to my great astonishment, uh, and my colleague Tony Greenwald's astonishment, that women's names did not become famous overnight uh, mm. in this in mm. this study. It was men's names that were. So we thought, oh, so the underlying perceptual fluency can be exactly the same. Uh, Sally Weisdorf and Sebastian Weisdorf can be equal in my sort of in my in my in, in the way my mind sees them as familiar, but. At the point of making a decision, is this famous, some other standard is being used. If female, not famous. If male, famous. And people were doing this without awareness. So I would quiz all 400 of them. (laughs) Did you use the gender of the name in making your choice? Absolutely not. Right. Well, how how could this be? And I just thought this was more interesting than the memory bias. And so off I went doing some different things that now make up the last 30 years. Yeah, of, of I want to ask you, 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 you use the language, um, I believe, is um, very often of implicit. And I don't mm. know if that is um, a synonym or, 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 a, mm. or a refinement of the word unconscious. Like, what, what does that word um, yeah, connote for you? It's a very good question, and I have pushed the word implicit, in part because... The word unconscious in our culture has a certain meaning. First of all, it is psychoanalytic. But more than that, it has the implication that the unconscious is this incredibly motivated, smart process that is constantly trying to do things that are in my interest and shove away the deep, dark secrets of my childhood that I don't wish to remember. I don't, and the science has not produced good evidence for that. The science tells us that the part that the word unconscious really should be used to refer to ordinary things, you know, things that are irrelevant, nothing that's dynamic and necessary. I mean, someday maybe we'll get evidence for that, but right now it's that I saw something in a store that had a certain feature, a pattern, and I see it again, and I like it more because it's familiar. That's that, so the word implicit came to be used by us almost in an effort to try to demystify mm-hmm. what the old unconscious might have meant. It's a failing project. <laughs> People love Is the it? word unconscious. Well, well, Everywhere I go, they say, a... you're the expert on unconscious bias. And <laughs> yeah, I say, yep, okay. But I think <laughs> yeah. it, and maybe because of the Freudian, you know, lingering f- associations, um, it, it, I think implicit takes also out the suspicion of, like, moral blame. Mm, um, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. That is a part of it. I mean, I don't want people to not learn from guilt and not learn from shame. I think those are powerful motives. Mm-hmm. They have made us, in large part, the more civilized people we are. But I do believe that in our culture and in many cultures, we are at a point where our conscious minds are so ahead of where our less conscious minds are. Our conscious minds deeply believe in egalitarianism, in selecting people based on things called merit and talent, 
and not based on the color of people's skin or their height or whether they have hair on their head. Uh, and and yet we are doing that. And so I like what you just said, which is implicit just sh- just allows us to shed that that whole sort of moral encasing in which so much of our values about am I a discriminator or not comes yes. that I am especially interested in letting people let go of that that sort of sense I'm a bad human being. The title of the book, therefore, has been blind spot, you know, hidden biases yeah. of good people. And the good people is extremely important to me. I do believe that we have changed over the course of our evolutionary history into becoming better and better people who have higher and higher standards for how we treat others. And so we are good. And um, we must recognize that and yet ask people the question, are you the good person you yourself want to be? Hmm. And the answer to that is, no, you're not. And that's just a fact. And we need to deal with that if we want to be on the path of self-improvement. I I, I really appreciate... Um I, just to just to shift the perspective a little bit on the idea to say to to shift it away from uh, the depravity of the unconscious to mm-hmm. the fact that our conscious minds have actually leapt ahead and actually leapt in a direction that we want to go um, mm-hmm. because I think what's very powerful about your work uh, and I, and I, I hear you talking about it in a really hopeful way is the, is that this this knowledge can be a form of power that we can use and and uh, and when we do get into um, calling each other names or labeling um, behaviors, uh, even maybe behaviors, for example, you know, that we don't intend, um, or even if we do intend, that that, that actually um, is not necessarily a way out. And it seems to me that you are very much committed to uh, wrestling with how this scientific knowledge gives us ways to change. Wrestling is a great word because <laughs> I think wrestling is what I do and what you do, and I believe every human does. Uh, I, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking to. I could be speaking to a bunch of new cadets at West Point. I could be speaking to a financial investment firm. I could be speaking to people who make um, engines for airplanes, and every one of them cares about the disparity between their values and their intentions and their consciously chosen goals and then their actual behavior. Mm-hmm. And if there is anything that I do that I think actually is for real, it is to demonstrate that disparity. I can do that one thing. Mm-hmm. I can say, I, Mazarin, have the following goals, and then I, Mazarin, observed my behavior in the way that I hope technology and other ways allow us to do. So I have people collecting data in my class on how often do I call on people of color in my class, given their numbers? Mm-hmm. How often do you I do, call on men and women? You have your yeah. class monitoring what's happening. I have the a TF sitting in the, in the back doing that. Okay, yeah. right. And yeah. I, I, this was, I did this 25 years ago when yeah. I was teaching at Yale, and I I remember telling myself I'm going to do this kind of equal calling and I'm going to keep this in mind. I was just horrified to discover at the end of a month how how different my actual calling behavior was from what I thought I was doing. 
how, how can that be? At some level, it's just puzzling because here I am with all the right intentions and something happens. The, the look on the face of some student just seems compelling enough to me that I feel I am going to delay letting the class go to let him ask that question and answer it. Uh, and in other cases, I feel like we'll do this next week. Why? How? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's the, the the wrestling. I see it everywhere. I see it, you know, I, I really have come to see humans as so similar to each other over, over, over time <laughs> right. rather than all the weird differences. Of course, there are real differences. and But but the similarity across culture and uh, in on this dimension that we all are seekers to be better in in some form, and that in American society we just lucked out. You know, we lucked out that we live in a country where every year close to a million people come from 150 whatever something like that countries in the world legally. I mean, what a gift this is to mm-hmm. be. In, in, if you were in an experiment, you would want to be in this condition. This of great, this vast experiment of a country. This vast experiment. Yeah. It's a social experiment on a scale we've never attempted before. And since the early 60s, we do this year after year after year. And we are the fish in the fishbowl. And we have no clue that we are being tested in some way. And that we will be a model for how the rest of the world will operate someday. I grew up in India. I came here when I was 24. That was more than 30 years ago. And I, of course, I love the country of my birth. And I think, my God, it's come so far because of very reasonable governmental policies and so on. But India is a country that does not admit a million foreign people every year. When I look at China, I think, yep, great. I'm glad that it is coming into its own in a way that nobody would have imagined. And yet, these countries are homogeneous in a way that the United States is not. And so if I have to put my bet on where are the great ideas going to come from, what, which country, which society is going to lead on the question of moral behavior, I, I, I feel I can say with great confidence it will be the United States, even though I know it may not be a popular answer to give um, in many parts of the world and even here, but it's a fact in Mm. in, 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 in my mind. Well, so before we keep going, and I I really want to pick up on that precisely in a minute and really talk about, you know, things that are happening in the world today and in the U.S. today and how you see them through the science you do, but but I want to just for the listener just do do a little bit of... um, describing what you know and just one place i might start is uh just stunning there's a there's a little test a, a grid uh really i think in the preface into to your book blind spot um the first page um where you actually are able as the reader in you know less than a minute to have this experience of seeing something on a page uh, moving the picture so that part of the picture disappears and experiencing that your brain fills in the blank with what it expected to see there. It doesn't show yeah. you that you have a blind spot. <laughs> you think you're seeing something and you think you know something. And, and, and this as an analogy for the fact that we, we also go through life with partial knowledge, which we fill in that this, this applies to social groups as well, and that our brain 
is filling is giving us information that may or may not be the the whole picture. <laughs> I don't know. Is that too simplified? No, it's not only simple. It's not too simplified. It is actually fundamental. It is a hallmark of human intelligence mm. that to survive, to evolve, to be able to do ordinary things, we have to fill in. We must fill in. We have theories about how the world works. I know that when I'm speaking to you in this little studio room, that certain things are going to happen. I'll listen to questions, I'll answer them. But I'm not going to listen all of a sudden to rock music being played. Certain things are simply not gonna happen. People aren't gonna walk into the room because right. they know. These are reasonable assumptions. We, we create order and we need order yeah. to function. And they work, mm -hmm. they work in many, many cases. But our worlds socially, intellectually, in the jobs that we have to do, they're no longer predictable in that way. Yeah. I can sit trying to admit a candidate to graduate school. Somebody, a manager, can be trying to think about who to hire. And all of those old theories that used to predict how people performed no longer work because somebody sits in front of you who can't speak like you. And yet, they can save your business. So all of a sudden, the very theories that I used to have that said, when people look different from me, don't hire them. That's not going to work out. They don't have your values. They don't understand what you're saying. Keep them out of your inner circle. That was a very reasonable philosophy a few dozen years ago, a few hundred years ago, for sure. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted by people who look and speak entirely different from me, and they are the ones I should outsource to. They're the ones who will solve the problem of my science by inventing a new piece of equipment that will show me something about the brain that I could never have done. How am I to cope with this? You know, this is an old machine in my head telling me what to do based on theories that it has learned that seemed reasonable and rational. And all of a sudden, I have this enormous task before me of putting all that aside and asking newly, is this really in my interest? Mm -hmm. So I've just come from teaching a class to a group of students at Harvard Business School um, on a problem that they read. It's an Airbnb problem. People who run Airbnb places, these are homes that people own into which they can allow people to come and stay for a small, smaller amount of money than those people would pay if they stayed in a hotel. It turns out that there is a race bias here. Um, if you are black, you are on the order of about 15% less likely to get a house. Because the host has a, an option the host to accept your reservation, option. right? Exactly. And so how do and the hosts, do they infer that by name or pictures? They do. Or? Yeah, mm -hmm. it can be name or pictures. Mm -hmm. And names are very interesting. Names give a lot of information. I gave them the example that if somebody saw my name, an H next to a Z, that's um, a <laughs> signal of a person who you shouldn't want in your home. Mm. Except that my email address also continues on and says at harvard.edu. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm a wonderful guest. Right. I'm a safe guest. I will pay. I won't break their furniture. And so all of this goes into computing how you make your choices. And here is my interest. 
at this moment, let's say that we set aside the problem of those who are consciously prejudiced and who say, I do not wish to have black people live in my house. Let's put them aside because for now I find them much less interesting and uh, I have very little to say to them. But let me take the example of somebody who might be like myself, who has no such conscious belief, who actually wishes to be a person who wants a diverse group of people who come and live in her apartment. The, I believe that large number of those people who are turning African-Americans down are such people. And on top of that, it turns out that if you turn down somebody African-American, this study shows, a study by Michael Luca, a colleague at HBS, shows that you're now only 35% likely to fill that slot. Hmm. So you're losing money. So now imagine the disparity between my conscious values and my action. I wish to have a diversity of people living in my apartment, but unconsciously my mind leads me to just say no to somebody for reasons I can't articulate. And then it turns out I make less money at the end of the month. Shouldn't I know that? So my advice was tell Airbnb to make those data known to those people. Mm -hmm. You turned X, Y, and Z down. That led you to lose $700 that that week. Uh, Are you okay with that? If you are, we have nothing to say to you. This is a free country. You can say to somebody, I don't like your face. And it's legal to say, I don't want to hire you if you're a private um, employer. But is that what's going on? And I doubt it is. I think large numbers of us want to make money and we want to be fair. And if we're not being fair and if we're not making money, I think um, some scientific evidence can play a role in making us aware. Is, 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 our, is our need to create order out of you know, the, the, the chaos that is, is reality um, behind? Uh, so, so I'm always struck, and I mean, this, isn't, this is another kind of a reflection of this, of how each of us knows, if we're asked to think about it for two seconds, that within our group, whether it's our family or the people we work with or, you know, whatever our clubs are, whatever our avocations are. We know that within that group itself, even if it's a small group, there's huge diversity. And there are people who we are more like and people who are very different from and perhaps people who drive us completely crazy, you know, especially in our families. And yet we are, they are kin. But when we, but we don't, we assume a kind of monolithic quality to 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 others, <laughs> um, so that yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. So I mean, even well, you know what I'm saying. And is is that is that connected? Yeah. Is that something our so brains the, do also? Yeah. So the monolithic way in which we think, to me, is most obvious when I can't come up with the right answer to a question. So in the book. We, we report on a little riddle, which many people now have heard. Uh, it was originally a riddle printed in Reader's Digest, I believe, but it also appeared on All in the Family. Mm. <laughs> and it, So anybody who watched TV in the 70s kind of knows, knows this riddle. And the riddle goes like this. A father and his son were in a car accident. The father dies at the scene. The boy, badly injured, is rushed to a local hospital. In the hospital, the operating surgeon looks at the boy and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. 
how can this be if the father just died? And when I was asked this riddle in 1985, my answer was, oh, the father who died at the scene was the adoptive father, and then the father who was the surgeon uh, was the biological father. Now, you know, this answer is so convoluted compared to what is the actually correct answer that it boggles my mind that I did not get the right answer. So I put this riddle up on a website recently, asked lots of people. 80% today of people who read this Didn't riddle get do it? not know the right answer. 80%. I mean, I've heard this before, heard. so I know what of the right course, answer is. Of course, so you know. The right answer, of course, is, it's why don't mother. you say? The surgeon is the boy's mother. <laughs> Yeah. Duh! How could this be that I didn't get right. this answer? And I will tell you, I, have, I, I say this in my lectures to people, and I saw a woman recently who, when she heard the right answer, she hit her head on the table <laughs> in front of her. And later when she came up to speak to me with a big bruise on her forehead, <laughs> uh, I, I said to her, I, 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 see, I, I see that you didn't get the answer and I saw what you did, but, you know, it's not – I understand the frustration, but you shouldn't have hit yourself so hard. And she mm. said, of course I should have. My mother is a surgeon. Mm. Now think about this, yeah. right? Think yeah. about it. So <laughs> right. th 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 there's something odd about the mind. Yeah. Okay, look, if if a hundred percent of surgeons were men, this would not be a bias. Mm -hmm. This would be a fact. Mm -hmm. But a good, I don't know, becoming thirty percent uh, of of surgeons maybe women and. And I've talked to doctors who work in hospitals where eighty percent of the entering class of surgeons are women. And they don't get the right answer. Yeah, <clears throat> and and that's your your that's what you mean by monolith. Mm -hmm. What what is it about our minds that uh, doesn't allow us to get to an obvious right answer? Because there's almost like a firewall in our minds that the stereotype really is. It won't let us traverse into the domain of the right answer because there's a wall, and mm -hmm. that wall is just sort of keeping us from getting there. Look, these simple ways of thinking paid off in the old world. You thought that way, there was no big ethical issue or an issue of not finding the right candidate or hiring the right candidate for the job. Your main issue was, do I survive to the next day? I don't think the world is that way anymore, and yet we must deal with the vestiges of, of these old ways of thinking. And, 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 you know, you said a minute ago that it was really... Um, in the early '60s, it was it was really in the, it was 50 years ago that we that this country um, experienced diversity. I mean, I don't even like the word diversity because I think it's too I small. I dislike it intensely. Right? It's just it's dry <laughs> and small. I and especially doesn't... hate when people say, uh, "I hired uh, the, the the diverse people." Yeah, yeah. I always say, like you know, when you say people of color, like, am I also yeah. a person of gender because I'm female? <laughs> right. Like right. what, what? What is all of this? You so know? yeah. It's, so it's, so, but 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 in that in that period, I mean, of course, we'd had racial diversity forever, but we uh, we acknowledged mm -hmm. it, right? We we let it. We let we started to let it become part of our identity, and of course, and look how much it changed. I mean, look in, in the yes. 1930s, in my city of Boston, whether you were Irish or Italian mattered hugely, hugely. It depended. It, it, it that dictated whether you could be a politician or a police officer, but I. I mean, look, that difference. I'm sure it exists, but it doesn't exist in the way it did, and in a very right. brief period of time, right? It just blurred. It just blurred. We call we call all of those people white Americans, 
And now there is a new one. But look, in 50 years, when everybody in this country is going to look like me, uh, olive-skinned or whatever, right. um, you know, it's going gonna, it, gonna to be very interesting to, to, to see what new, what new dimensions we're going to find in order to create difference because the mind is a difference-seeking machine. Mm. But I think that what your work, your science is contributing to is, you know, so many things changed in the 60s. So many things opened up. The Immigration Act of 1965 brought, right, probably mm-hmm. your family um, mm-hmm. for the first time, non-white Europeans. Um, and those are those those families, you know, that 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 generation is now rising to leadership. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And of course, women found liberation, and all of these things happen. But what your science points out is that our we that it we our bodies and brains needed time. It wasn't enough just to pass the laws or right to enact mm-hmm. policies. I mean, I sometimes think about so you know W. B. Du Bois saying the problem of the twentieth century is the problem of the color mm-hmm. line. But what what you help us understand is there's a color line in our heads. Um, yeah, there are all kinds of those lines. Line. Right, yeah, it's a so, difference line. So look, you and yeah. I, I'm going to just extrapolate and yeah. say that you and I may have very strong conscious values that a person, this person's skin color shouldn't matter. And I think we've actually taken many steps to make sure that in our own individual acts and those of our organizations that we try to overcome that. But one of the, one of the differences that I think almost all of us kind of think are okay our differences in beliefs. Mm-hmm. You think differently from me. Your yeah. God is different from mine. Uh, but mostly that you, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican. I mean, the, these differences are are so strong that even in the most secular person's mind, we cannot think of the other as we would ourselves and people like ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have some evidence from brain imaging data that show that for Republicans and Democrats, the other who is like them gets preferential treatment at the level of which neurons are going to be activated in thinking about that person, the ones that mm. are also used for self versus the ones that are not used for self. And so it's starting at a very early stage. And I think if one wants to be smart, we better know that. If you're a judge, if you're a woman who is a judge, you better know that in a child custody case, a very different set of patterns of neural activation will occur when you begin to think about what it's going to mean for this woman to never have access to her children hmm. versus what it will mean for a man to not have access to his own children. And I think, therefore, we should ask the question of what it might mean for a large number of Catholics to be making decisions about abortion given the large number of Catholics on the Supreme Court. Um, These are very reasonable questions for us to ask as modern humans. You know, I'd love to just, you know, for a few minutes kind of talk to you about some of the things that are happening in culture now and just ask, like, how you watch these things from the perspective of what you know about the human condition, because you know political events and social events often don't get analyzed in terms of the human condition, and one would be the the ferment. Uh, what's the word I want to use? In some places, kind of um, uproar that's happening on college campuses around the country. Um, mm-hmm. That 
to some extent, it's connected to a lot of things. But I, I was at a I was at a, a gathering at UC Irvine recently about freedom of expression. You know, mm-hmm. somebody said we we universities have spent somebody from Stanford said we've spent generations now several generations inviting diversity but somehow didn't think it would change us (laughs) 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 or that they wouldn't ask any questions or say anything that that we hadn't asked or said before so but how do you how do you follow this what's going on now in call on college campuses and what are the what are you seeing what intrigues you what are the questions you're asking what do we you wish we were paying attention to when I see this particular debate that, that you mentioned, and it's happening everywhere, on my campus included, yeah. I'm very excited by it because it's making all of us deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> right, yes. And I think this is terrific. We are being forced to answer the question of our generation. I come believing that people should be admitted to Harvard University based on their accomplishments. When we begin to do that, we find that there is a diversity of people who get in because there are many different forms of accomplishment. And ever since Harvard stopped using financial resources as a way of admitting, we now have a large number of students, close to half, who are on deep financial aid. And that changes literally the complexion of college students with every underrepresented minority sitting in Harvard College and their numbers in the population and some ethnic minorities sitting in numbers much larger than their numbers in the population, Asians, Jews, for example. So so we would sit around saying, okay, we're done. We've done done our job. Harvard mimics the country. Imagine that. (laughs) And a bunch of Harvard students say, I don't feel comfortable here. I don't feel at home. They are moved to create a group that is titled something like, I may not get this right, but I am Harvard too. Mm. Um, And then we have the events that have occurred on many college campuses where freedom of expression is being pitted against a need for safety. Yes. I come from a tradition, a Western tradition, I will add, where the desire to be the desire to be and make students in your class uncomfortable is your mission. It is my job (laughs) to tell people to feel uncomfortable, to squirm, to go back and think hard about where they come from and so on. And now I'm being told that when I say that, I'm making somebody possibly uncomfortable. And I have argued forever, this is a safe room in which any, we can say anything and we will deal with it because if we don't, we've basically given up the most fundamental aspect of who we are and what we prize and value and what I believe is at the heart of social change. So even today in class when some wonderful student said, well, why should it be Airbnb's job to change society if people don't want to have people who are Black in their homes, that's their God-given right. Mm-hmm. And I, in a few minutes later, I said, Andy, or whatever his name was, um, you're right. That is, that is currently a right. I can look at, and Andy was kind of 
uh, beefy and bald. And I said, I can look at your face and say, I don't like your face. And I certainly do not like men without hair on their heads, so I don't want to hire you. And you should have seen the change. So mm. people are very mm. open to the idea of speaking freely <laughs> until, until it's about the them. freedom is about them. Yeah. And I, I, I could see, you know, he actually slid down in his mm-hmm. chair and became small. And I said, sit up. You're not a short, bald man. You're just bald. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, wanted, I wanted him to realize that if he's going to dish it out, yeah. it's going to be dished back. And I could see African-Americans and women in the room just look at me with their jaws dropping like, you actually just said that mm. to him. Mm. And I am so given that I am for this kind of speech— it does bother me when people say, I feel unsafe. And then I realize that no value is absolute. I can have a deep, deep, deep value on freedom of expression, but the world didn't start yesterday right. with everybody equal. Right. It started a long time ago. Right. And largely, I would say, advantaged African-Americans who come to Harvard are people who have themselves lived in a fairly, I would say, safe place. But their world is different today than it would have been even 10 years ago. A black student at Harvard now must confront the fact that every week somebody who looks like them is being shot in some part of the country. So I want to ask I don't understand how that doesn't create PTSD. I don't understand how it doesn't have any impact. And therefore, as a professor... I need to now ask myself, what does that mean? How am I to make people for whom the world is unsafe feel safe and equally safe? So this is complex. There's nothing about this issue that is simple, but I have every faith that we will come out of it if we don't hold back, if we keep talking, and if we try to understand what the other is saying. As you have watched um, this specter of... Those events in Ferguson and beyond Ferguson. Um, again, you know, I notice uh, we often go to, um, and understandably, you know, let's put body cameras on policemen, but not, again, looking at what is going on. What, what does this say about our species and how do we address this human dynamic uh, if you're not assuming that every policeman is inherently evil and hates black people, um, I mean, how do you watch uh, that th- those kinds of things happening? And what what would you, you know, what are the, again? What are the questions you ask? What are the observations you make? And how would you want to add to our common deliberation about this? Um, I do talk to police officers. And I come away very moved by what they say and how I, who have nothing like the job they do, have to recognize about the nature of their lives and their jobs. And as in any place, there are variations in people's beliefs. But what I'm seeing are a large number of people who absolutely do not want to make mistakes, who wish to uphold the law, but they, like me, are creatures of a culture. So I am extremely 
how shall I say, forgiving. Um, this is not me speaking as a scientist, me speaking as Mazarin the human. I'm extremely forgiving of people who make mistakes, but I am not forgiving of people who do not wish to build into their system an accountability mm -hmm. of themselves and for themselves. I am not able to understand a police officer who does not wish for transparency in their own behavior. I do not understand why police officers reject wearing bulletproof vests. I am not able to understand people who do not want cameras that will just tell the truth about what happened, and cameras are not always truth tellers. It turns out that the angle of the camera matters hugely mm -hmm. to what you learn, but at least we will have cameras on the body of the police officer and cameras on the body of the observers, and jointly they will tell us a story. So in my, I have, I have little regard for people who are not able to confront with the best technology and the best science available new ways of dealing with our bias. I will give you examples of people who come from a different world, uh, senior leaders in corporations who are struggling with the question of what are, we, what are we doing about making sure that the best people get promoted in our corporations? And I hear this everywhere I go. Why? Why are we failing to hire the best people? We know that we're losing some of the best people. And the way in which we measure talent and so on is so limited that we are not able to. And I'll give you the example of people who are trying different things. We have this uh, procedure, which is a call, we just call it blinding. You know, if you did not know who the person was, yeah. and if you only had access to their accomplishments, if they were a musician and you couldn't see them, this but is what you symphony could hear orchestras them. did to diversify, symphony orchestras right? did, and they are held by us as among the sort of most genius of professions that literally kept themselves from seeing irrelevant information mm -hmm. so that they could rely only on the most obvious information they needed, which was sound. Yeah. Um, so here is an example of what people are doing. They're saying, look, we're doing succession planning. Who should be the next leader of this great corporation? People who are part of the you know, Fortune 100 might do this. They actually create biographies of their leaders, and they have people rate who should be the next CEO based on the blind biography. And then they have meetings that are the more traditional kind where you go on a retreat and spend a lot of money and talk about who should be the next leader. And they come up with two sets of names, and they discover that those names are not the same at all. So the, bi the, the biographies are, do not include the name. They just no, tell the story. they only include accomplishments, yeah. Uh -huh. And then there are the usual conversations. And if you come up with a list of 20 people using blind biographies and 20 people using the standard method, and you discover that those 20 names are completely non-overlapping, mm. something's going on. Yeah. Now, to me, this is smart. This is a group of people who are saying, let's just check our bias. Let's just see if we're... Now, I'm not going to argue that the blind list is always better than the non-blind list, but I am saying... It should give you great pause if your names are not the same when you use method one and method two. What is it about the blind method that leads you to pick 
person number six, but never that person when uh, that person's name is known or that person's gender is known or that person's sexuality is known or whatever it might be. That's what smart people are supposed to do. So so I, I, I'm, I'm seeing everywhere I go, and here is a, an odd thing to say, I think of corporate America as a head on this issue hmm. than I see nonprofit organizations like universities like governmental agencies, where the bottom line is not in your face every three months. I think corporations recognize that this is a, there's a business case here, that if you don't get it, that you are going to lose money to a competitor. And for whatever reason that we may or may not approve of, um, they are far ahead in their thinking about merit, talent, how to recruit the best talent, how to bring it, how to promote people, how to do succession planning, how to deal with clients because they don't want to lose money. And I'm actually surprised because my own bias would have been that 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 they would come to this later than the highfalutin <laughs> folks I hang out with. That's, that's your, your implicit bias about the corporate world. My right? implicit bias <laughs> led me to think that, yes. and it is so not true. Yeah, yeah. and so what do you know, what do we know about how change is possible? I mean, I know there's lots of work going on also in police departments, uh, not just about the transparency, but about exposing people to implicit bias, making them conscious of that. Does that work? I mean, what, what does work? It's a question that my lab is completely engaged with mm-hmm. right now. We've done a lot of work to demonstrate bias. And our next task is to understand, with the newest technologies we have, what kind of change are we capable of? Yeah. And I'd like to sort of put these categories of change, let's call them, into two piles. I'll call one the personal one, the personal trajectory, the personal path that a person may choose to be on. And this is more or less a matter of choice. Uh, um, not everybody has to do it. But increasingly, I'm able to say to people in professional roles that if you don't do it, you are more or less giving up the idea of being a leader because it seems to me that it is going to be an, a deeply important quality of what we will look for in leaders, the right. ability to be able to traverse across difference and to be able to look at somebody and say, you and I are one. And now let me look at who you are. That ability is one that I would say many, many people are wanting to be on, on that path. Um, often when I speak about this in the business context, I'm so relieved when people say after listening for a while, they'll say, so you're telling me this is how I can make money, but tell me, how should I raise my child? And I come away absolutely thrilled that they saw the arc, that they saw that the very same thing that is going to be fundamental to doing the best as an employee of a corporation or a manager is also what's relevant in thinking about how do I want my child to be? And 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 I, I think we'll call all of that sort of the personal path, and I'll come back to that in a second if we have time. Mm-hmm. The other path is, of course, what are the policies that we can put in place as an organization or as governmental agencies 
that will actually change our behavior without us trying. So imagine that the symphony orchestra, the judges in the blind case are no better humans than the ones who were choosing before the blinding. They're the same. But the organization implemented a strategy. And that strategy, irrespective of your personal change, is going to make a difference. You created an environment in which those, what do you call them, the mind bugs. (laughs) Yes, you've removed the mind bug. Which they didn't have power, which they lost their power. Yes, you may have your mind bug, Uh but that mind bug was never allowed to Uh be expressed. It's very much like our genes, you know. We have, we're born with a genetic endowment. But we now know that it's silly to think that we're hardwired and always will we do this and that because our genes are going to make us do that. Of course, they're strongly determining of many things about us. And yet, they're modifiable. They're changeable. A whole field of epigenetics and all of the ways in which gene-environment interactions can either, you know, pull out or basically completely reduce that gene to nothing. So given all of that, I think that these environmental interventions should be thought about in as much as we think about our own minds. Most people say, oh, how can I change myself? And I say, but how could you change your environment? So kind of in each of our institutions, that kind of inquiry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could decide that a resume can be submitted to me in the form in which it arrives. Many organizations say, please submit your resume, upload it to this, this, this place on the web. But why should we take a resume in the form in which it arrives? Don't you think that people who come from families that are first generation going to college versus those that are, you know, landed on the Mayflower, that these people are going to create slightly different resumes? Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, shouldn't the organization have a form into Mm. which you put in the relevant information in exactly the same order for everybody. It's the least you can do if you actually care. If you care about fairness, then you should do that. If you don't, you should look at all of these other things as indicators of of sameness, and you will end up hiring the people that, you know, who— who know the rules, who know the rules about how to make up a resume. That's that's the first step. Yeah. Um, so so to me, it seems like it's, a, it's, it's, it's both. You constantly are on the individual path if you wish to be on change. And I even say that with some skepticism. That is to say, it may not be possible in the future to say, I have to decide whether I want to ch- change or not. You know, I'm told that Many years ago, lawyers didn't need to know how to use the web, that many new aspects of technology were not things that were required of them, that it was assumed that some clerk would do all of that work for them. But now it turns out that what used to be a discretionary dimension of appraisal is now a requirement because it is assumed that if you can't, Techno, you know, move around and find the right information, you are incompetent. And I would like us to get to a point where we will decide that if you don't understand your own mind and you're not using new rules to change yourself, <laughs> that you're incompetent. Right. And therefore, maybe yeah. we shouldn't hire you. Mm. Someday. <laughs> I want to... Um, 
we're we're in such an interesting, intense moment. I mean, I mean, just to to speak to the to the to the what you call the personal, but 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 the personal in the context of of geopolitical realities of living in a globalized world of living with this pace of technology. Um, as you say, it we 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 are in a very different situation from our ancestors. You know, our our our, our original ancestors who who should have been threatened by anybody who was different and unknown. And and now the challenge for us is to collaborate and to understand our well-being linked to that of people around the globe in very, very concrete ways. But as part of that same picture, um, I mean, that's fr- that's a frightening prospect for human beings. And so it seems like on the one hand, we have this world where, you know, we use the word interconnected and it's true on so many levels. And yet it does feel like fear is on the rise. So how does, wh- what does fear do to these dynamics that you study? And, you know, how, what do we, how do we, how do we, how do we work with that? Fear is so easy to create, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, if I touch this microphone and it gives me a shock, I will run from it. <laughs> How can I not? It would be unwise to touch it again. So fear is easy to produce, and yet we know that fear is not equal. My colleague uh, Liz Phelps, the neuroscientist, and I did a study many years ago where we actually created fear in people by associating a neutral face with a shock. (laughs) You would sit there and you would see face number one. Nothing would happen. You would see face number one again and nothing would happen. But face number two, whenever it appeared, would give you a slightly uncomfortable buzz on your finger. And very quickly, we learn to fear face two and not to fear face one. And so we gave to African Americans and to white Americans faces that were either white or black, and half the white faces produced fear and half the black faces produced fear, but not the others. And what we were interested in is not so much how much fear do they create, because they can easily create fear. You're really not going to care if the face is black or white. If it's going to create fear, you're going to learn to fear them. But then we stop giving the aversive stimulus. Now you see the same face too, and before it used to give you a shock, and now it's not. And what's of interest to us as scientists is how fast do you lose fear? Right. How fast do you give up fearing the previously fearful person? Right. And what we discovered is that fear reduction is deeply based on who that other is. You reduce your fear towards previously fear-producing others if they're members of your group. For whites, you lose fear to white faster than to black. To black Americans, you lose fear to black more mm. quickly than you would to white. Mm. You know, so, so what we know is that the same basic fear is not equal. That, and and, and a, somebody who wrote a commentary on a paper actually likened our result to the real-world question of terrorism. And why right. it is that we might lose fear to homegrown terrorists far more quickly than we do to foreign-born terrorists, for example. <sighs> um, very interesting question because we do try foreign-born terrorists in this country as we do homegrown ones. 
And to know this result is important. And, you know, we have, we have some reason to think that intergroup intimacy might reduce this bias. There's no excellent evidence, but people who say they've had romantic relations with members of the other group, whites who've had uh, romantic relationships with African Americans and African Americans who've had romantic relationships with whites, do tend to show lower bias of this kind. And so, you know, we don't have, I wouldn't call that strong evidence, but I would say there is some suggestion that breaking bread together, having intimacy of other kinds together, continuously can, because the brain is malleable. It's not rigid. It has a set of default responses, but they're extremely malleable to experience. And that's what the modern world gives us. Do not pretend, I say, if you live in LA or in New York, that as a result of living in a diverse to use the bad word, um, <laughs> that, simple to, word. <laughs> that just because simple word that you use, that just because you live in a diverse city that you are now protected. In fact, you may be worse off because you see things every day. Your brain has to notice them. There are statistics about yeah. crime and who has which kind of job. And as you walk down the street, you notice who's well-dressed and who's not. All of this is being learned. God knows if you're an equivalent person in Montana, you may be more protected in some ways than if you live in this society where you actually see differences and they're correlated with all sorts of attributes. But if you live in a diverse city like New York or L.A. and you use the city's diversity to change your experiences, I would, I would argue that that would change you in some way. That kind of that that mitigates somehow these yeah. impulses. I want to. Yes. Um, I know we we're well. We have fifteen minutes. Um, we're, we need to draw to a close. I mean, here's here's another question. I uh, I wonder if w- what you just said about um, you know that dynamic of of hanging on to ideas about the other, and and also our 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 kind of just built in need to create categories just as a way we navigate the complexity of reality. If these things help explain why often, I mean, it seems like right now, it seems like it's often true that the other who is, where fear is played on an idea of the other. And I, I would say that that happens with Muslims now, and I would say that it happens with refugees and immigrants. Um, actually, um, it, it's kind of an abstraction. I mean, it's not necessarily uh, groups that people are interacting with, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's possible in, let's say, in the political realm, um, and maybe this is in a bizarre way comforting for people to say, here, here is the enemy, here's the other. Mm-hmm. And it kind of focuses attention. Um, but it's not so much related to actual experiences people are having. Yeah, I'm not remembering the study exactly, but there is an Eastern European country in which a survey was done 
where they were given a nonsense name of a group and asked, how much do you hate them? How much would you like them not to come to our country? And they got large numbers of people saying, we don't want them here. We really dislike them. Uh, they're filthy and mean and nasty. And they didn't exist. That was a made-up name. Really? Yeah. So I, I, I think... I think that's what you're trying to get at. And now, of course, think about Muslims who actually do exist. Yeah. And there are things that a subset of Muslims are doing that create legitimate fear in, 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 in some uh, people or in everybody, yeah. uh, myself included. And so, the, but the worry is, what do we do about that when I find that there are Muslims who come up to me after a talk I give and they say, I know that I'm never going to be promoted because I know that when people look at me, that as they hear my name, that on my forehead gets written the word radical. And I can feel it being etched on my forehead as I speak and then they, when they turn away, you know, um, so it's a question that is a moral question. It's a business question of uh, the kind we've talked about, about talent, about how, uh, what is, what are the rights of that human being and, and what do they get? And, and it's true in, in so many ways, you know, it's true even in, on, for groups for whom we think the stereotypes have faded. So I would argue that between Boston and Washington, I do not see too much explicit anti-Semitism. And yet I was quite struck when on a radio station I listen to regularly, which I would categorize as a relatively liberal radio station, I remember that in the aftermath of the Bernie Madoff event, when Bernie Madoff made away with the money of lots of people, including philanthropic organizations and many good people, I, I remember being startled by the kind of hesitant but pretty much there anti-Semitism that I mm. could detect on talk radio. Uh, and it went away after a few weeks or months, I would say. And it's just stuck in my head because I realized that this is a stereotype that was true, we know. Like he kind of triggered, ago. he kind of embodied, triggered these yeah. old stereotypes that still right. are somewhere in our brains. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, Elizabethan England, sure. Yeah. Uh, we had a stereotype of uh, what Jews were like. And and then it was true in the United States. We have data from the 1930s where people were willing to say explicitly yeah. uh, Jews are mercenary, shrewd, calculating, money-making, sly. We would never see that anymore. No. And so at some level, I would like to believe it's gone. And I do believe it is consciously it's gone at some level. But the fact that it can be recreated with a tiny, a single event should give us some pause. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about how the virtue of tolerance is really kind of the core civic virtue that we enshrined in the 60s to say how we're going to navigate all this new difference. And that, in fact, it's not a very robust virtue because it it actually kind of keeps us, you know, it's like you stay over there and do what you do and I'll be me. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if I wonder I don't, I don't know if you use the word language of virtues or what what an equivalent language would be for you. You are a scientist, but you know the civil rights leaders um, mobilized around the notion of love, and I wonder if you have a vocabulary of qualities that you would 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 think could be effective for us to try to cultivate at that personal level, compassion or empathy, um, aspirations that might mm-hmm. be added to, not not to take away tolerance, but 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 it's kind of complete tolerance in terms of what we know now. It's a good question. You're right about the word tolerance. Oh, it's a good word. <laughs> I, I like it. I, um, I also see that it's, it seems sounds a little naive these yeah. days when we speak about it. Yeah. And I almost think that its naivete can be captured by the wonderful Tom Lehrer song called National Brotherhood Week, in which he sings about how there should be a, a, a week when various groups love each other and we mention that we are all brothers and then the rest of the year we do whatever we want. (laughs) It's a hysterically funny song. It's a real loss that he doesn't sing anymore. But but tolerance sort of is reminiscent to me of that way of sort of thinking. But um, I have heard and I know that many scientists these days study empathy and compassion and I've follow the work and I'm very intrigued by what we know about how our brains respond when they've had those experiences. I favor, and as you said, as a scientist, what's the word? My favorite word is understanding. Hmm. Hmm. I know it's somewhat colder than (laughs) the word compassion or empathy, but my regular lab seminar, which is an ongoing course, is called the Understand Seminar. Mm. And it has many different meanings, of course. We're there to understand, to understand the research and to make our own. But we study a set of topics that I believe that if when you understand, you are left, if it's done right, you're left with no option but to change in some way. And... I like giving more complexity to the word understand whenever I have a chance. But I think um, you have to create environments where understanding is feels safe to people and is possible. Obviously, yeah. your classroom is one of those places, but our culture has a lot of spaces in which, you know, debate is the is the is the form of 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 wrestling with issues and where under, there's not a lot of space for that work of understanding. So one of the things that we haven't talked about is sort of what I think is at the core of the work my colleagues and I have done, and that is to have built a test, to have built a method, to have created something on the web that you can go take. You can take a test. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take more than three or four minutes, and it will give you an insight into your mind. What is the test? It's very simple. The assumption is that when two things come to be paired with each other in our experience over and over and over again, like the word bread and butter, that when you say bread, butter will come to mind. 
Likewise, I'm going to argue when you say leader, male is going to come to mind. When you say nurse, female is going to come to mind. And that's a fact. How strong is that? And our test tries to get at the strength of that association. And it does it in an, I would say, ingenious way because I didn't invent the test. My colleague, (laughs) Tony Greenwald, did. And... The ingeniousness of this test is that you can't avoid but make those associations even if you consciously don't want to. So when I take the test in which I am asked to associate male and career, female and home, I can do it very, very easily. But when the test requires the opposite association of male and home, female and career, I pretty much fall apart. I can't do it. And when I can't do it, I understand. I understand that I'm a product of a culture where the culture has now gotten into my head enough that I am the culture. I cannot say there is a culture out there. It's biased. Not me. Consciously, (laughs) that's true. Right. But not at this other level. And I would argue that when you come face to face with that, and if you visit implicit.harvard.edu and take a test, it does produce a deep understanding, maybe not immediately, but after months of having taken the test. I've had people call me up and say, I took your stupid test six months ago and didn't think anything was useful, but (laughs) I just traveled to a new city where I now live and I have to pick a doctor and I selected a white doctor from the list of doctors before me at a new HMO and it turns out that the black doctor actually had expertise in my disease of diabetes, but I hadn't picked him. Hmm. And now I think that maybe I see what your stupid test was trying to tell me then and I didn't understand. And I am writing to thank you for it. Okay, mm-hmm. now this is a simple little 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 uh, report, but just think about it. Somebody rejects an experience. Later, something happens that's completely unrelated to it. There's no simple, you know, uh, similarity between the test and then this doctor choosing. And the person, because of conscious awareness and deep understanding of their minds, they come to an understanding that... I did something because that was not in my own interest. And that test may be telling me something. So under- Those sorts yeah. of things give me hope. Mm. Understanding as, as a root of change. So I, I can't, um, I mean, I'd love to have three more hours for you to tell me how, you know, how, you know, where, give, like give us what you know about where to take it from there. But I think I'll just ask the question this way. I mean, how do you construct the environment, your life, your environment, how do you move through the world differently um, n- having taken this test yourself, having also mm-hmm. not liked the results? You know, because of this science that you do, what, what, what actions do you take that turns that understanding into uh, change? Okay, so this is me speaking as yeah. a person, yeah. not, not necessarily as a scientist. Um, I do two things. I no longer believe that I can just let information into my mind as it comes. I believe I must choose and edit. I can't go home 
and lie on my couch and turn on the TV and watch the thing that seems interesting because that is going to leave a mark on my mind. Mm. I now have to decide what do I want to watch. And I actually am pleased that that the way technology now allows me to craft what I want to watch and listen to um, allows me greater freedom to say, this is what I do not want to watch and this is what I do want to watch. When yeah, I mean, could you give three. an example of something you might have yeah. watched before but you wouldn't watch now? Is that well, too personal? So, <laughs> that, the easier thing to watch is what I don't want to watch. Yeah. And, and look, I have to say, I do like American football, but I don't watch it. Mm. Okay, that's an example. Mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time not watching it because I do love the sport. But it's a, it's, a, it's a moral issue for me. If people are dying and becoming mentally ill from a sport, I think of it as my having participated in watching gladiators. Mm. Yeah. And I cannot do it. It's just a, it's a, it's a personal choice. I don't, I don't expect that it will uh, translate to other people's choices, but it's a personal one. I, I also want to watch media that disagree with my basic way of thinking. So I actually have chosen a sort of platform where I get news from very different sources mm-hmm. that I would not have otherwise chosen to, to hear. So that's just sort of a my, my determining what happens. Right. But the other thing that I do do is to actually create inputs into my mind of my own making I, I, I do think that, that in some ways our brains are simple and that they will believe that things are real even if they're not. So that's what movies do. That's what novels do for yeah. us. They, and so what if I have a series of a thousand pictures that rotate through on my screensaver of people who come from many parts of the world that I will never, ever see or even think about? Look, just take an example close by. Um, I have no idea what life for a farmer in Iowa is. I bet it's hard. I bet I have no idea what they have to deal with. I don't think I will ever truly understand. But right now, they're a distant group in my mind. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I don't think about farming and farmers. If If my screensaver literally just points out the existence of such people and what they might what their issues might be i believe that my brain is going to begin to care at some level mm. Mm. and if i show myself possibilities that don't exist easily that's even better imagine the following a picture that i truly love it's an old picture from it's a cover of a new yorker i think Um, It's a woman uh, who is a construction worker. She's wearing a hard hat, heavy boots, jeans, and a flannel shirt. And she is breastfeeding her baby at what I think (laughs) is like a lunch hour. Mm. Now, just think about this image. It, It makes me question everything. Who is a woman? Who is a construction worker? What do construction workers do on lunch break? Mm. Um, I suspect that even my old little brain will begin to stretch in some ways that will make it easier for me when a young woman walks into my office speaking like a valley girl, a voice that I would never have associated with a great thinker. 
Yeah. Um, and I will now be able to listen more carefully to the words and the content rather than the register in which the voice is speaking or the accent or the little belly girl lilt, which um, I have discarded in the past as the voice of people who don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, mm. These are hopes. I, I say this as just, but, but I also, I don't just say it's a hope because I do know enough as a psychologist about learning and memory. And I know that we learn. How much of this I need to do in order to change, I cannot say. But I can say that there is a point at which this brain is not just elastic in moving to what is being suggested, but that it may be plastic yeah. in that it can be reset into a new mold. Hmm. That's wonderful. I, I just have one final question. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge question, but... Um, I just want you to just how you would start answering the question of, um, you know, how you would start talking about what you've learned about what it means to be human, perhaps in ways that would have surprised you in your Zoro Zoroastrian uh, childhood. <laughs> it's, a, it's a surprise to me that what I've come to study actually harkens back to some very deep beliefs in Zoroastrianism. Mm. So a very simple tenet, we were not raised deeply religious, but we knew some of what were the central tenets of our religion. And the most important one is that the world is made up of good and evil. And your job as a Zoroastrian is to ask every day, which side am I on? And every day when I do my little experiments and I have two categories, good and bad, black and white. <laughs> I think, in a sense, the test that I use, the implicit association test, is a test that is telling me which side I'm on in a way I would never have known without the science. Hmm. And that just thrills me that Zoroaster may have been the first social psychologist. I mean, he may have he may have figured out that the world is simply divided in people's minds even into good and evil. And a good way to get people to think about this is to ask which one do you want to be on? But he would have never imagined that in the 20th and 21st century somebody would make a test to actually get at those concepts in some measurable, objectively measurable way and tell people which side they were on so that they could adjust. Yeah. Well, this has just been delightful. I'm so, so happy we finally got mm -hmm. to do this. And uh, I think this, this work you're doing is just, it's so helpful, practically helpful to people. And I've kind of been learning about implicit bias here and there, and I talk about it a lot, and I, you know, I've needed to know more, and it's just fabulous to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Krista. I so appreciate your presence in the world. And I have to say, this conversation turned out very differently than I had imagined. I had thought we would talk about the research and what did study one show and study two show and study three. And it's been quite different than that. And I, while I loved this and I'm happy with it, is it possible that some of the science 
will be narrated by you so that yes. people will actually know yes. what we find that, you know, I mean, I can send you some of those sort of most basic facts that we know if that will help. But but it just, it feels to me like little of the science is what we did, but instead all the ramifications of the science. Yeah, is what no, we, absolutely. And that's that? in my mind as I... Um, as I as I'm thinking about how we produce it, that we that we give that we will give people an idea, um, mm, you know, not just at means. the top, but through that, you know, what what is the context? But then, yeah, then you then what we're doing. I mean, here. it's almost interesting to have some people who've never taken the test take it. Yeah, and and have them go ouch or ooh or whatever they do. Well, they, we'll definitely point uh, people to the test. Um, yeah, and, I, I think yeah. that would be important. Yeah, because yeah. not because we need subjects. We've got 17 million. Uh, tests taken, uh, so we don't need any. But it's mostly an educational device that now oh, sits I, at the website. Yeah. I think when people finish listening to this, they will immediately go take the test. So we'll see. We'll test that hypothesis. When the and time I assume comes. the the book is something you mentioned as well. Is yes, that yes, absolutely. Oh, okay, I'll mention oh, okay. the book at the, at the top and uh, and uh-huh. at the bottom and yeah and, and you know all and the will way I know when this airs? So yes. Can, um, okay. You've been working um, with uh, Lily. Is that right? Yeah, and so Lily. Lily will be. She'll she'll continue. You know, we may have some questions in between, but she'll absolutely sure. give you. I don't think we're going to actually. We're we're um we're we're gathering some work now, and then we're going to have a production uh, intensive production period. I actually have a book coming out in April. So, um, what is it? Oh, it's called Becoming Wise. Oh, how lovely! <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to oh, be on book tour, but I know this yeah. will be we'll be producing this in the, you know in the next couple During of months, but time. I think not right away. Um, but we're okay. just thrilled to have it. Thank you very much. And thank good you. luck uh, on the book and everything. Oh, I look thank forward you so to much. buying it. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye-bye.